Hey everybody, just a quick ultra lo-fi pre-intro intro. I am in uh, a hotel room, in Ryan's hotel room in New Haven for the ALSCW conference, and that's why this is a day late, but uh, it's, it is a really good episode, and I should have a secret show episode up for you as well relatively soon. Brian Broger, if you're listening, I finally printed out your fucking E.A. Robinson essay, and it's really good so far, and I look forward to reading the rest of it. With luck, I will get you on the show before too long. Now, here is your intro music. Enjoy the show. Matthew Buckley Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. I'm going to go quick with this intro because I have a bunch of packing still to do, and I've got a, my tried and true frozen pizza ready to burn in the oven downstairs method for keeping myself from running over. So uh, we do. I do want to thank all of you for listening, all of you for subscribing. Uh, if you go to the secret show um, at sleeverickets.secret, sorry, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm so tired. If you go to sleeverickets.substack.com, you will find the secret show. You can sign up there for free and get samples, or uh, you can get a whole, whole shitload of uh, extra episodes if, you have, uh, if you've run out and you want to hear more. I know some of you have recently are, are new and are starting at the beginning, and uh, Godspeed to you. <laughs> I wish you luck. But at any rate, this week uh, I have the long-awaited uh, conversation with Amit Majmadar about his essay in the LARB recently, Essay on Repetition. Yeah, Essay on Repetition in uh, the Los Angeles Review of Books, which is a lot weirder and more entertaining than the title might initially lead you to believe. We also, though, while I had him on the line, talked about arrogance and specifically the arrogance of poets, including him and me. And it was a pretty yeah, it was, it was like a surprising, fun, strange conversation. Um, he also, this is the conversation in which he blew my mind about the Bhagavad Gita and just completely changed my perspective on that. But um, as I said, I'm going to keep it short. This is Amit Majundar, um on essay on repetition and a bunch of other things. And I hope you enjoy. Maybe... You know, when we talk, when we say about logic, I kind of do. I probably do concern myself more with that than maybe if some of my contempt, some of our contemporaries, simply because I like it when things make sense. And as soon as you want things to make sense, you are always going to have some element of, you know, this leads to that, and you you're not going to be doing the Ashbury thing where you switch pronouns in mid sentence. And because you don't really care that it, whether it makes sense or not. And you're not going to do the thing where it's just like, I'm going to string together completely disjointed images and then act as though it's a whole, you know, I, that's not, that's not how I have, that's not the kind of poetry that I like to read. Right. And I have, I see no reason to write it. And frankly, I don't even know how, 
in style or in vogue that stuff is anymore. It had its heyday a little bit a while ago. And I don't even think, so like, I don't even know what I'd be gaining if I did, you know, do the inauthentic thing, you know? Because for me, that would be inauthentic. It would be inauthentic for me to write something that was devoid of logic. And even within the individual verse paragraphs of the verse essay on repetition, there within within those verse paragraphs there is there is uh, you know a sense there there is sense there's logic within that and although i kind of think of it when i composed it it was very much had an element of musical extemporization to it where i was you know there's a lot of like like really elaborate couplet like rhymes at the at the end of some of those lines oh yeah like like not typical rhymes that you would do and a lot of that is extemporization of syllable and unkillable i don't usually get excited but that was pretty (laughs) yeah and there's like stanza lion and dandelion and just like random Uh, stuff yeah you rhyme karma with with uh two separate words i forget at some point like yes something yeah yeah it's a it's a yeah it's inventive and fun on that level yeah yeah it's there's definitely musical improvisation and and i don't i don't even know i don't even know like you know how that how i do that to be honest with you like i can't necessarily rationally describe to you the process by which that happens because there's no there was no point like literally seconds before I rhymed that there was no, there was not a situation where I was like, I want to rhyme those two words. Like that's not, you know, it's, oh, no, of course. it's very yeah. strange. It's very strange process. The compositional process is very mysterious to me. And I don't, I don't know how that works. Well, you, you say, I mean, you say a couple things about it that I, cause there's a, there's another, like there's a larger thing I want to get at at some point, but sure. bef- like before we talk abstractly about this too much, do you want to just read some of this so listeners can get a little bit of it in their ears? I'm trying to find a, um, I mean, you- Give me a passage uh, that you think would be good. How about the second verse paragraph? What do you call those, by the way? Verse paragraphs? I just call them verse paragraphs, yeah. Yeah, maybe the second verse paragraph, which is kind of, it, it opens with this scene you yeah. have a little introductory meditation and then you go to this specific right. scene and then later we have a separate scene that lines up right which is like a, which is like a uh, a mirror image of that which is kind of like a repetition of it yeah yeah, yeah. two two kisses two like right. exactly early, yeah. Yeah. yeah two early first loves. kisses exactly and like and before that immediately before that um i talk about the the verse essay itself and i and i say how like um i talk about how um the the presiding spirit of this verse essay, which is, you know, not particularly the most romantic type of poem is going to be the muse of love poetry. So I say, you know, didactic poems simply aren't written. I know, Irato, help me, I am smitten. Irato, help me make my hand your glove and shape this essay as a poem of love. And then I switch to that. Then I, then I seg to that particular um, scene that you're talking about, which sounds like this. Go back then to the stacks, that reckless kiss, wet-lipped, wide-eyed. I gazed at Iskalis, book-lust and lust-lust coupled in that moment. My eyes, my hands were roving, seeking Romans and Greeks, low-breds, low-greens, like Christmas in the mind. First kiss, her incandescent skin flickers and dims, but I resist revision. I know the lobes were not my 
own tradition and she was white, it wasn't meant to be. Or should I write, she wasn't meant for me? Enough to place them there, the books, the lover, between the shelves, two secrets to uncover. My love of literature and love of sex, a mutually overwritten text from then on. So you see why, since the age of 14, I've felt goose flesh on the page. I often say that books are where I've sought truth. Truth is, I love them as I love my hot youth. So like, I guess part of what I, I did find striking about the, the shift, at least on the first read from prose to verse, is that I, I'm with you, I'm with you 100% in far preferring sense-making poetry to not, I've been in a big argument with Alice and Cameron and Shane about this recently, but I like, I, I'm, I find myself the, the, uh, the stick in the mud when it comes to wanting to have some sense of not just like what happened, what, you know, like how meaning remains consistent line to line, but also like why the poet might've chosen this versus that, which mm -hmm. in an Ashbury poem becomes an impossible question. Right. Um, but, but I think, I also think that's, that can be a little bit of a straw man because like your your sentences make sense. I it's it's not, you know. Even when I marvel at a, a moment of invention, I usually can th like think about why you might have chosen this. I'm seldom mm -hmm. am I just sort of left mm -hmm. totally puzzled. But you know the the prose section of this essay, and I do. Th I guess I still think of it as like one larger essay. But the prose introduction uh, has a sense that you are sitting down to get to a point. You have a purpose to achieve, and maybe that purpose is just introducing this, ver you know, verse piece adequately. But right. it, but there is a there is a sense of a forward direction, an arrow. Mm -hmm. Whereas as soon as we step into verse, it starts to feel like this sort of cyclic, you know, like you're you're spiraling towards something, but you're no longer proceeding towards right. it. And and right. here as well, it's um, it, it jumps back. It jumps yeah, oh, it jumps. Back, it jumps yeah. back backward in time, and it's and it's clear that you are like there is some some sort of even if it's just loose in the moment of composition, some scheme of setting up themes, setting up you yeah. know an, an image versus another image. But then I think like the it's the it's these little moments inside of it that are I think most affecting. It's a I sort of I stumbled initially over this this bit. Um, I know the lobes were not my own tradition and she was white. It wasn't meant to be, or should I write? She wasn't meant for me. And I know, you know, having spoken to you before you have, uh, like a, a deep devotion to an involvement in a number of, you know, literary traditions that, you know, mm -hmm. obviously go outside of, of wherever, you know, your, yeah. your own, you know, personal experience or family experience yeah. or nationality, you know, like all, all of that, right. what, you know, the, the, the only boundary is language, you know, as, as I, right. I, I know is how you think of it. But it's part of why I find this like I think if it were if we were reading this logically, this would be a really disturbing moment, right? Right. It, it, like that that that's a that's a really heavy. I, I think that's why I put Stephen. I, I I'm totally with you on that yeah. point that you're making, and that's why I put own in 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 sort of. Oh scary, yeah, right? yeah. But, but that's part of what I find affecting about this is that yeah. it it reveals the 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 illogical logic of like a adolescent thought or like, you know, like mm -hmm. there's a, you know, it, she was white. It wasn't meant to be, which of course isn't a larger statement about like miscegenation, but it's a moment mm -hmm. of like something in yourself or something in your own experience or something like, well, I guess in my own life, this is sort of, this is how this happened. And that's, and you have that correction or should I write? It wasn't meant, she wasn't meant for me. 
But the, right. like rather than being a if this were if this were really sort of a, a work of logic, then you would say, all right, well, what is the point I'm trying to get to, and what can I what can I shave off in order to get there as as cleanly mm -hmm. as possible? Whereas you have these little stumbles and corrections and repetitions and moments of reflection that, to me, have like far far more accurately get at experience, and that's like that's where I guess I think of that that, that as being like a a much more effective lyric than logical argument. Right. And if you look at like uh, an Alexander Pope verse essay, like I, I actually reread Pope's essay on man after I wrote this because mm. I didn't want to get too right. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't influenced want to too by him. And then what I noticed when I was reading Alexander Pope's uh, essay on man is that he, uh, he, he is very, very, it's a very, very austere style that he has evolved where he doesn't talk about himself one bit. And so the, the introduction of autobiographical material at all is right off the bat unpopian, you know, and Pope is just, he's just, I mean, there are some other places where he kind of talks to his friends and, you know, and even that, but <clears throat> you know, he, he doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't talk about his past. He doesn't talk about any of that. In Pope, you know, I, 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 you know, in Pope, it's very, very, um, he literally, in each one of his little subsections of the essay on man, like he has a philosophical prose summary of the idea that he's going to get across, you know? And so what I've written in this essay is it's Alexander Popish in the sound of it. Mm -hmm. All right. And if it tracks very closely, like the, the heroic couplet is practiced the way Alexander Pope practiced it. So your, yours are not as it's closed as his are. His tend to be very his, closed. His, his, are, his are very closed. Mine are, I have a lot of runs of closed ones. Oh, yeah. Ones. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of runs of closed ones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, but, and so in, so there are a lot of passages where the, where the couplet is practiced in, in Pope's manner. However, the, the 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 substance of it is not very Alexander Popian at all because he 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 would he, there's two main differences one is the exclusion of um, personal lyric uh, elements and the second thing is as you're mentioning a definite logical argument a specific logical argument which can be paraphrased um, effectively at the outset and it's almost right. as though he's translating it into verse you know yeah this, this would sense, not paraphrase effectively yeah. this yeah, it wouldn't paraphrase effectively and 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 then there's like a structural aspect of it that that is the result of the introduction of autobiographical material where i have a repetition of two first kisses right mm -hmm. which aren't necessarily i i aren't necessarily based in reality <laughs> well you, yeah you, you, ha yeah. you have a moment where you say like i wouldn't make this up which is like yes. like obviously a lie but it's a sort of it's i wouldn't like, make this up you're invoking <laughs> authenticity in a way up. that's like yeah. clearly yeah it's a it's yeah. a rhetorical I even talk about it, unless unless uh memory is what a memoir crafts right yeah, I, think yeah. is what I say i say i say it that way at one point so i'm clearly making it up yeah. but anyway it's it's like these two first kisses which are like um parallelisms yeah. and it's kind of like you know, the the second one is a sort of uh, conceptualization of my real first kiss with my wife, who's upstairs right, right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, and but but it, that first kiss did not happen in front of books or anything. You know, sure, yeah, yeah. But in a conceptual sense, 
what is behind her is it's Indian literature. Our, right? our shared tradition. Yeah, okay, our yeah, shared yeah. tradition is behind her. And so like yeah. there I make it a metaphoric, like there I make it a literalization of what is behind her, which is like yeah. all these books from like Hindu antiquity. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and so in that sense it's quote unquote behind her. And so um and so that's and then so then that's then like mirrored with how the Loeb classics are behind this other hypothetical. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The, you know, it, it's. I think you're. You're totally. I mean, obviously, the title essay on, um, and then the, you're right. The the your your argument sort of calls your shot in terms of imitating. I mean, you do even say, uh, um, oh shoot, where is it? There's a line where you. It seems very much that you you look like a, a Babe Ruth. To my knowledge, Pope has zero imitators among the living major American or English poets, even the ones who do formal work, parenthesis, except for fucking me in about about <laughs> one more page. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, it has like in that sense, it's very Popian, but you're right, like the the texture and the course of the poem itself are not very much like his essays on what it mm -hmm. totally reminded me of throughout, though, was Eloisa to Abelard. Mm, um, you're which right. is which, which blends right. like personal reflection and passion and lyric with yeah. with you know it, it does have a sort of an argument i mean she she she's not merely meditating on her own feelings she does talk through the logic of some of what she's how she's thinking about this relationship but it's all it never escapes the personal right i, I want to reread that now it's one I, it's I, one of my I, favorites it's yeah really i read that years ago i mean yeah, yeah, so many yeah. years ago like i was a teenager years ago yeah and so like i definitely want to reread that because i recently listened to i audiobooked the letters of abelard and, and eloise or whatever eloise and uh that's a crazy story holy shit yeah you know what is really because i know you you're a you're like a history nerd too if you have not found there's a um i think you can just i'll try to send you a link if you can online you can find the i think it's called the historia calamitatum yes that was part of the audiobook oh man that is jesus yes it had the letters and then it was then so it was a two-part audiobook they had the letters and then the second part of the audiobook was the historia calamitatum which uh wow you know, but the thing is, like, I feel like I feel like that kind of stuff, um, that kind of stuff happens, you know, in some parts of the world even today. You know, where they, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, you know. But the thing is, like, um, I mean, in, many, in many cases today, it would be far far worse for her. I mean, because I mean, he's castrated, and they're both sent off to live. Yeah. You know, but but in, I mean, in many of the places in the world where that sort of thing would happen, the the woman would come off. You're right. In, in much sense, worse shape. They, they would, they would like, you mean like kill her or something? Yeah, I mean, kill her, yeah, disfigure her, her yeah. Some, some right. Disfigure her or something like that. Yeah. yeah, so it's, that is, that is, it is crazy. But also I think what makes it even, um, what makes it, what makes it very interesting to me was that, you know, when he, when he wrote to her after his castration, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, like, she, there's these letters where she's like really, really into him still. And she's like very passionate towards him. And then he writes back to her in this very, very like cold, moralizing way. And I was like, man, yeah, he has been castrated. Like, wow. So he, yeah. he's undergone a change. He's undergone a real change. The, this is yeah, just the, crazy the, um, the version I read had some pretty good historical notes with it. And it, it made this sort of observation that I think like, 
in in a couple of ways i think today maybe it may be an american thing but like the he gets in trouble for sleeping with a student when he's a monk mm -hmm. but but the the point that's made in the in the the notes to the version i read was that neither his crime nor his punishment were at the time understood in quite as absolute terms as they might be today mm. like he is but like sexual impropriety or something where like we today in this country can't get over mm -hmm. like it's mm -hmm. like that's that's a permanent mark in a way that you can't you oh, know whereas yeah. whereas you know for him there are other things that would have been that would have been worse that would have more mm -hmm. permanently marred his reputation and likewise you know, he he certainly is <laughs> expresses grief over his castration, but yeah. far far worse for him is the earlier punishment when he's forced to burn his own like the one copy of a book that he's written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. A, like a far deeper wound. Oh yeah. So it, it, yeah, it's but but yeah, like for for her, it's a it is a it's it's asymmetrical, and I think Pope's Pope's ventriloquization of her is really touching it, I think, in, in picking I, up. I'm going to definitely reread that. One thing I, you know, that you bring up a good point, which is that in our time, sexual impropriety is unforgivable, kind of permanently yeah. marked. And I think that heresy is kind of like that, was kind of like that back in those days. Yeah. And it's just interesting to see how, how um, values change in a society over time where you and I right now could say anything we wanted to about Christian theology right? and we'd get away with it, mm -hmm. even though this is a Christian majority country. Yeah. And yet if either one of us was even accused of like groping somebody, Oh God. Yeah. It would, game be, over. Yeah. It would be game over. And yeah. I don't know what you would do. I don't know what you would do in that situation. I mean, as a, as a writer, I guess you would have to, um, I don't know, change your name, publish under a pseudonym. Yeah. I mean, uh, you'd have to do something like that and just start from zero. Like whatever you've published until now under your name is gone. And yeah. then you start from zero again, you know? Oh yeah. So, so this, this gets to another theme of this essay that at least it, it was a theme I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, I did want to see if, so the, the, the stanza or the, the paragraph that immediately follows that first, scene of the the kiss before the the books with the white the white girl and the um the nominally white but i mean it's it's calling like ancient ancient greeks of various de denominations all white seems a little bit blurry, i, ha I but... have an interesting dialogue i want to send you a link about that oh, yeah? Me and a buddy of mine um who's also very you know devoutly hindu yeah um he he studied the classics in college like meaning he studied greek, greek uh, yeah. and everything and um super erudite guy and um, he's an attorney and uh, in, in California. And basically, um, you know, me and him and a few other guys, like we're always on like signal chat together talking about random stuff. Anyway, we did this, we did this whole dialogue about whether the classics are white or not, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and we just let loose. We just talked about, we, we, it's a written dialogue. Right, and and yeah. so it's published. You can find it online. I'll actually send it to you. And like, um, we go in depth on that question. And, yeah. Uh, 
Long they were plenty ago. racist, too, yeah. as with like even like no, I mean, 19th century Europe. Like they were very yeah. racist against each other. Like it was yeah, with yeah, it. Like yeah. whiteness is a you know it, it's a construct no, I, clearly. I, but yeah, it's a, yeah. What? Uh, oh no. I mean, I, I I think that's a I think that it's a garbage idea to basically claim that the classics, the Greek and Roman classics, are white. I mean, I so does he. So does we both. Yeah, yeah, do. Yeah. And neither of us is white. We technically yeah. don't have a dog in this fight. You know. But we're just, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like we don't have yeah, some yeah. ethno-racial uh, uh, attachment to that sure. tradition. We love the tradition. Both right. he and I adore that tradition. Right. Yeah. With, we have a, you have a human people. attachment yeah. to it. You have a linguistic yeah, you have a human attachment, attachment to it. Yeah. So it's not a tribalist. It's not a tribalist right. kind of thing where we're like, no, the classics aren't aren't racistly bad. No, right. we're we're just literally like this does not. This is a category error. It is a form of historical myopia. You know, myopia, yeah. and and it it does not bear up under you know under investigation you know it, yeah. it's you objectively assessed this is not an appropriate way to characterize the classics but uh yes uh, sorry i i oh we, no no i mean that, yeah digression yes yeah yeah and i know that is a that's uh that is a topic of a lot of debate in classics departments right now i'm not as i'm not as you know, in the know in that, but I, but I know that yeah, like, I mean, there, I'm, there's I'm a weird, glad, there's a weird I'm interest I'm not in part of like, that world. Yeah. Cause I would end up getting excommunicated. I was going to say, yeah, that, that's, that's a place where maybe heresy could get you in trouble. Uh, yeah. You know, it, I think, you know, there's, you know, Umberto Eco talks about how the universities in the modern day are the equivalent of the monasteries in yeah. the medieval times. And so that's why, that's why, like, your, you know, heresy is a thing in in mm -hmm. academia. You know? Oh yeah, Heres heresy is a thing. You can get defenestrated. You can get excommunicated. Right. Uh, for thinking the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, publishing the wrong thing, you can be made to retract. You can have a, you know, struggle sessions. All those types of things. You know, it's it's something that happens when there's a high degree of conformity, ideological conformity, or or any type of conformity like that, and then your conformity is the the currency it's a currency that yeah. allows that allows you to arise within that hierarchy you know yeah. and so hierarchical situation hierarchical systems with strong emphasis on conformity that you know that's monastery university is very similar yeah 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 i i, I and it may be my own my own obsession but i i tend to think about like i i'm i'm um I have some affiliation with the ALSCW, which uh, is had some ups and downs in recent years. But I, the the old joke that uh, Alicia Stallings made to me about it when she first introduced the idea, she said the oh the the ALSCW is like the MLA for people who like books, um, mm. and it and it I think gets it like I think it is much easier for something like an English department to become dogmatic and brittle and uh, at risk of intellectual conformity when it becomes more and more removed from pleasure, mm -hmm. either like pleasure in the original text or even like pleasure in a, a beautiful or elegant or a funny argument that mm -hmm. when it's, when it is, when it becomes obsessed with, with some sort of rigid correspondent notion of truth, Mm -hmm. I think that's where you, you get you. That's where this sort of way of thinking can be can thrive. Whereas I think if you're always having to go back to contact with the text, contact with 
with actual actual enjoyment in what you're doing, then I think it's a little bit harder because because you can have some you know somebody with a strange set of ideas can can still uh, rev you know can still yeah. cause enjoy can show you a new way to enjoy something or can be right, entertaining. You know, I think I think the other element to to remember for me at least when I think about it is uh, competition or hierarchy and competition. Oh God, yeah, yeah. yeah once you have that in in play. Um, people are going to try to find ways to sink each other and yeah, yeah, yeah. you can get rid of a rival by, you know, accusing them of wrong thing. You're going right. to do that because there's, you, they create artificial, like maybe it's not artificial. Maybe it's true scarcity, scarcity of attention, yeah. scarcity of prestige. Yeah. Um, that's why they don't give out a hundred Pulitzer prizes in poetry a year. They right. have to keep that scarce. There can only be one. Yeah. Yeah. And this holds true of everything. And they, they try and mitigate that a little bit by releasing a long list for the National Book Awards and then a short list and then the one. But, you know, yeah. everyone wants to be the one, you know, yeah. you want to be the one. And so they create, they create a commodity and then they keep it artificially scarce. And, 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 in, that, and, and in that context, once you do that, then everyone's competing for it. And then you kind of have to elbow the next guy to get yours. Yeah. And, and that's that once that comes into play, all sorts of things open up in the old monasteries, you know, everyone wanted to be the big dog. Everyone yeah. wanted to have, get, you know, get a, get called, get, come to the attention of, of, of Rome, come to the attention of the, of the, of the bishops and cardinals, and then be elevated and, you know, get, get, get to the next stage in the, in the in the church hierarchy right yeah. and there were ways to do that and conformity was one and then you know accusing the other guy the, your rival that you know oh you know he he believes that uh you know the 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 son and the father of, are not of one flesh or something like something you know random like that and then and then you then you kind of just stab that guy and you, you you're, you're the one who ends yeah. up you know getting the goodies so yeah and you get you get further and further away from what was ostensibly the, the goal of the whole enterprise. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. And I think, I think back in old Europe, I, I think that it was something of a career for like the church was a career for a lot of people. Oh yeah. So, I mean, well, that's, that's really, so clear with yeah. Abelard. Like he's yeah. a brilliant scholar and like, this is yeah. the way you have that career. Right. Right. And so, and I think, but I think that even to opt for that as a career over say law or medicine or yeah. whatever else they did back then, you have to have a kernel of love. And so even the most, um, you know, for example, like the, the person, like if, if I were a classicist spouting the few things that I just said to you a little bit ago, and then people, you know, the classicists who tried to cancel me over that, right. they would have entered that field with a kernel of love for the old Greeks and Romans, right. same as me. Yeah, It's just that in the course of that process, it gets, gets gets grisly you know yeah the pursuit takes on a life of its own ambition corrupts yeah so so this is actually very relevant to the other big thing i wanted to talk with you about would you read the the paragraph that immediately follows the one you just read about that sure. that, that first kiss so it's the, I often say that books are where I've sought truth. Truth is, I love them as I love my hot youth. You also, as with Pope, you have a you have a sweet tooth for some for some uh, some juicy feminine rhymes in here. <laughs> so yeah, just we just follow, just pick up right after that if you would. Yeah, here we are. Um, desire was the heart of it, of course. 
the set theme and variation that condensed that wet dream of twinned success in love and literature. I manage it these days. There is no cure for it, this twinging of the psyche's knee. I've read Girard. I know it isn't me desiring what I want. My first ambition in letters, execute a repetition of Shakespeare's oeuvre. I wrote blank verse plays before I had my driver's license. Days spent making, botching, each poetic move the master made. What was I out to prove? Why did I want so fiercely to become him? I craved his title. There was only one him, but I was sure that I would be the second. Or was my Mises how the muses beckoned me onward, coaxing me with my ambition to master verse through slavish repetition? My Mises at its core is me. That's why imitation has to start with I. The, um, do you know the Anthony Hecht poem, A Letter? I may have read it, but I don't yeah, it's. I think it's in The Hard Hours. It's a, it's a love poem, but he... He had early on. He has this line: "I, I try my best to continue as before," and it and it's the, the 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 point of the whole poem is that there's there is no getting over this this sort of broken affair uh, that he had, and it's that it it sort of consumes his whole life. And that I manage it these days. I heard I heard that same sentiment there. So you have you uh, were in your earlier appearance. You were truly one of my most quietly controversial guests. <laughs> like, like most people I heard from uh, were like were very enthusiastic. I know Ethan um, McGuire. I think you've interacted with on uh, mm -hmm. Twitter before. He's yeah. you know he's like oh Majmundar is my favorite poet. This is you know this is great. Oh, nice. um, a smaller but like you know notable number were furious with you. But well, not because of anything you said, and not in disagreement with anything you said, and not even in disapproval of any of your writing. That it was, it was not. It was interesting because it was not a. They didn't think you were wrong about anything. They didn't think you had. They didn't think your work was not good. But they thought you were arrogant. Oh. And I. But see, I, I totally. <laughs> I to, no, I totally sympathize with this though, uh, because I feel like. It's impossible to write poetry without some like significant arrogant impulse, and mm -hmm. like this, I I I sympathize so much with this paragraph mm -hmm. because I think like I obviously you know as you get into it, it takes on a life of its own, and you like you you don't remember necessarily the very first impulse, but like I definitely for many many years this was my goal to to. Yeah. To do Shakespeare's plays, to write, you know, to like yeah. to, you know, not just to do good work, but to do capital G great work. I mean, like that—that's mm -hmm. that—that's the drive. Like, I in a way, I don't really understand doing it without that drive. And I, I yeah. talked with Alice a little bit with this recently. Like, uh, you know among poets you know we'll all very frequently make fun of ourselves or joke about not being rambo or not being keats or that you know yeah. uh, i was talking to cameron about rambo the other night uh and 
and that's all true and it all is it's, you know as as the uh, i sent you the thomas nagel piece i think like he he's right in that it's probably healthy to view ourselves with some irony and to laugh at ourselves some <laughs> but i don't i never feel as if like in those conversations where people say like oh well you know we're not we're nothing great we're just doing our our little work and i i never feel totally comfortable because you know part of me thinks like well if if we're not going to, if there's no chance that we're going to be doing great work, if there's no chance that like I could still write something really significant, mm -hmm. then why the fuck don't I just blow my brains out? Like, like it's, it's to me, I can't ever l totally let go of that drive. And so I, in a way, like I, like my response is like, well, if you don't have some arrogance, like if you're not really in it to win, mm -hmm. like if you're not in it, not just to win or be the number one or be the best, but like if you're not in it to do really great work then why do it at all like how can you stand it yeah and you know i think that the classic the classical tradition is really good about this because okay. it it talks about so for, there's a, this unbroken chain from the a antiquity all the way to like napoleon and milton and napoleon of uh glory okay yeah of glory and the pursuit of glory and the pursuit of glory relates directly to the glory of people who were glorious before you. And so, yeah. so, so it, uh, I think it was the battle of Austerlitz. There's this anecdote about Napoleon and he's, you know, the battle wasn't necessarily going that great. I don't know if that was the exact battle, but one of those battles. And there's this, somebody, there's this anecdote that someone wrote about, like someone saw Napoleon on the battlefield and he's, he's like all this gun smoke, you know, smoke everywhere. He's the literal, literal fog of war. Mm -hmm. And he's screaming at the enemy, I am Charlemagne. I am Charlemagne. Oh my God. Okay? And, and, and that's, yeah. that's Napoleon, right? Yeah. And if you look at um, uh, Milton, right? So Milton writes this epic paradise lost but in his 20s he wrote this manuscript where he just laid out a bunch of ideas and he it wasn't like he was a hundred and he wasn't like oh the gods have determined that i shall write paradise lost yeah. to justify god's ways to man he was just as willing to write a play he was just as willing to write about arthur uh and the knights of the round table because that's what spencer had written about and he basically was just looking for the theme or the theme, the subject, the form that he was then going to become Virgil with, right. you know, yeah, he was going yeah, to become, yeah. uh, uh, you know, whoever. And so when Milton was in the middle of writing, you know, Paradise Lost, that was his way of shouting, I am Virgil, you know, yeah. that was his, I am Charlemagne, right? It's yeah. his equivalent was I am Virgil. And like, yeah. I think there's also a story in the classical world about like Caesar uh, turning 33 or something, or one of those guys turns 33 and he thinks about what Alexander did by the time he was 33. He's like, yeah, yeah. he conquered the world and died and I've done nothing, you know? Right. And I don't know which one of those guys it was. I think it was Caesar, right. but anyway. Um, I mean, and, and Augustus yeah. took Caesar's name. I mean, was adopted right. by him posthumously, but also took his name deliberately to say like, oh, I'm, I'm Caesar. Yeah, and, and then that holds true all the way to kaiser wilhelm right right yeah. kaiser means caesar yeah czar yeah. means caesar yeah. you know and and it's all about looking at all the glorious people of the past and then being like i'm charlemagne you know yeah and and when you write and when you write um you know it, it there is there is this sort of 
you know, you have to have that conviction of, of uh, in yourself and conviction and belief. And that can be a turnoff to people who are insecure. And, you know, it, it, it no I like the, all right, shots fired. All right. I like that. No, I mean, look, if you, that, if you, if you found I'm arrogant, then you, he's got words for you. <laughs> no, you know what? It, it's, it's kind of like, it, you know, if it, it is, it can be, it can be perceived as arrogant, I guess, but um, I, I, you know, that's, that's sort of like a prerequisite to, to the moment of writing. Now, if I carry that accidentally out of my, you know, my zone, like when I'm in my zone, I want right. to be like that. I don't want to be like that outside of my zone. And I think yeah, most yeah, people yeah. who know me would not necessarily uh, characterize me like that. I know my people who know me best would not, but, yeah. um, and, and the flip side of that is that, uh, you know, self, self-criticism, right? Like, so I'm the biggest enemy of my own work. Like right. I've, like, there's no, I've, I've gotten negative reviews over the years for various books, prose, poetry, whatever, but none of them have, have ever said anything as bad about my work yeah. Yeah. as I have thought yeah. and said about, I thought and said about my own work. And there's entire books. Like I, I can't even touch my own books. I published like a bunch of books at this point. I, I can't, I, I can't even look at them sometimes. Like, yeah. And there's entire manuscripts that I have that I don't even send out because I'm like, that's not good enough. Um, so, so, I mean, <clears throat> so I guess the, the flip side of the in the zone uh, arrogance or ego expansiveness or, or whatever you want to think of it as the I am Charlemagne aspect yeah, of yeah. When, when I'm in the writing zone is the, is the fact that I, I'm also shouting, I am dirt, you know, I'm, a, I'm yeah, an earthworm yeah. at the same time. Uh, as soon as I get out of that zone. So I'm actually, maybe that, you know, those two extremes, those two, those two extremes are only there for my literary life for the most part, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. in my day-to-day -day life, I'm very, very level and like not like that and not extreme in any way, really, to be honest with you. But when it comes to my literary life, like when I'm in the zone, I, I'm like intense and uh, intensely one way. And then when I'm outside the zone, analyzing what I've written, I'm, I'm kind of like down on myself a lot. So it's kind of a mix, I guess. Oh, no, it, when I think yeah. that like the, there is this funny combination of a, like a healthy arrogance and a very limited pride. Mm -hmm. with that it is important for, because I think, I think pride can be deadly when it comes to poetry because you're it the same you know, pride is what keeps you from saying, oh, no, this was not good enough. I'm going to mm -hmm. throw all this out. Like mm -hmm. the, the, the arrogance is the same impulse that says that you like, I'm going to, I'm going to dismiss all this. I'm not going to keep this. I'm not going to publish this because it's, even if it's good enough, it's not good enough for me. Right. You like, know, I, I think, that's, yeah. that's a good point. That's funny. It's kind of like a form of arrogance where you're like, you this, this work is not worthy. Of right. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of a, a snootiness towards your own productions, right. but that actually probably helps vet things a little bit, you know? Oh yeah. I and know. I think, I think yeah. you know, there's, there's poets. Like, I think, I think, you know, uh, Elizabeth Bishop Frost, I mean, I think, I think they, they have like, they, they didn't publish as much as they wrote. You know, like there's oh, a, God, a no. lot of writers like that. And some of them have like very, very small amounts of work that they publish. Yeah. But there's like all these stuff. That Elliot, Hausman, Larkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Bishop, certainly. Yeah. And I, and I think you're, you're very right that there is something like the, the difference between 
it's like uh, what's the, the the you know generalized versus acute anxiety. Like generalized arrogance is you know leads to like like tyranny. You know, like Donald Trump. I don't know. Like, but I think yeah. like you're there. You know that you hear about serious competitive athletes and the like I, like the stuff they'll have in their headphones when they're about to go on to play mm -hmm. or the kind of their pep talks to themselves. There was a story I remember hearing. I used to dabble in the the fashion world some, and I had an, a, a former. Um, schoolmate who briefly was a model for Gucci and there's a story I heard about there's this woman whose whole job was to give the pep talk to the male Gucci models right before the show and wow. it was I mean it was this sort of like I it was like you are Charlotte it was like you are the hottest 10 guys in in Italy every fucking woman out there wants to fuck you I want to fuck you you're like you're uh, gonna go murder every one of them they're not worthy of you you know you just give this yeah. them this insane speech which of course like taken out of that context is mm -hmm. nightmarish, but it's like you you can't do certain things unless you, unless in that moment you believe something impossible. Yeah, and you know, I think, I think, you know, thoughts matter, thoughts matter. And you know, what you tell yourself matters and and mindset matters. And, and that you can't, uh, it, it, you know, you have to you have to be able to uh, hopefully quarantine that though you know in your in your life so that the people around you don't have to put up with that and I think that from what I've seen of like or what I've read rather of like toxic artist types like yeah. what happens is that there's a there's a like a firewall that breaks like a, like basically the quarantine like the like the way they are in the zone when they're in the zone, it like bleeds over into how they are at all other times at other times in their lives. And then that's gotta be a pain to live around. I can only imagine. Because, no, yeah, it's dead, yeah. deadly, but you're intoxic so, is the right so, word. For yeah. It. So when you read, when you read these biographies of, of like great artists who like just treat the people around them like crap, I often think that that self intensity, that intensity of, of, of that arrogance of I can do this or I can do that. It then tramples over other people around them. So it's very, it's very important to have that insight and then to kind of cordon it off, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, right. And I mean, and, and the, the, the say, like, I think like the, the right, the same, the same way that you can, you can have a hunger for greatness and therefore have a dissatisfaction with anything less than that. Mm -hmm. I think you need to, you need to have that ability with your own personality to say, right. to say like, I, I can laugh at this other thing from here when I'm doing like, I mean, and there's nothing as humbling as like having kids or having a, you know, a spouse mm -hmm. who can put you in your place. But then mm -hmm. like when the door is shut and I'm in this room, then, then I put on my Napoleon hat or my, you know. Um, so I, yeah, I, I had like some, some sort of silly thoughts or observations. I'm, I have a, um, Partly because I've I've like looked at and listened to and gotten um, there was that frustrating uh, Adam Gopnik piece on rhyme and I've been thinking about rap and I'm going to be talking to a rapper soon for the show and and looking at spoken word and stuff I've gotten really interested in distinctions between different kinds of preferences in rhyme mm -hmm. and I my rule of thumb has been that typically with like you know, there's no good words for formalist or new, like the post new formalist, whatever, like the camp I generally associate with, mm -hmm. 
page poetry and and uh, even like you won the justice prize some years ago and that like that whole world i the my association generally speaking is that uh in the if you're going to choose a a slant rhyme then mm. generally that camp tends to favor consonant slant rhymes mm. whereas mm -hmm. uh, uh spoken word rap um song you know, like singer songwriters uh often use slant rhymes but they tend to be assonant and mm -hmm. here I thought, interestingly, there, I found one, I could have missed it, but I thought I found one consonant slant rhyme, which was frantic and inauthentic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But other yeah. than that, I think you had a lot, but they were almost, I think they were, apart from that, I think they were all assonant rhymes. Mm. So encore with concord, Eden yeah. with beating. Uh, oh, there's your, yeah, every 10th beats a, Every tenth beats charm, a uh, concurrence fortunate as instant karma. That's yeah, that's yeah, well, that which is a true rhyme, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. like you have um, uh, mostly assonant slant rhymes throughout, and then you had this line that made me think like, oh, is this is this a declaration of uh, is this like a little ars poetical statement? You say because it isn't rhyme if it isn't heard, mm, and of course, yeah. assonant rhyme lands in the ear more right. strongly than consonant rhyme does. Is this is this conscious? Is this deliberate? Is this no? Specific? It's not. It's not conscious. But you bring up an excellent point. Okay. You bring up an excellent point. No, I mean, awesome, awesome analysis. I guess taught <laughs> me something about myself just now. Um, yeah, hundred percent. No, that's actually actually very true. But I do believe that it isn't rhyme if it isn't heard. I, I do believe that in an objective sense. Like it's not a rhyme if you didn't hear it. And and like I know I was I'm I I think it was Paul Muldoon or somebody or someone was writing about him or something who was like, he rhymed 16 lines later or something like right. that. Right, yeah, 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 yeah and, yeah. and I'm like, that doesn't count. That's not a yeah. rhyme. Somebody, somebody who yeah. said of him, he could rhyme cat with dog. Cause he did, he, like a lot of his rhymes are sort of high conceptual rhymes or right, as high you conceptual said, they're so ones, far but this apart. One was like, it, was like a, it was like a hard rhyme, but it was like 16 yeah. lines apart. And I'm like, no, at that point you haven't heard it. It's not really a rhyme, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so I do believe that it isn't rhyme if it isn't heard, yeah. I, I, all right. I, I do right. think that. So you so you and, disapprove of Larkin's uh, rhyming uh, kids with diaphragm and uh, <laughs> in line no, 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 no. I, I like I like every type of rhyme to be yeah, honest yeah. with you. It's just oh. in this particular piece, I think it was very phonetically or musically composed. So I mm -hmm. probably naturally gravitated towards that. But I've used plenty of consonantal rhyme, and uh, you know, I sometimes rhyme have rhyme. I've written poems where I rhymed antonyms and stuff like that, and mm -hmm. like. I like it all, to be honest with you. I, yeah, there's yeah. nothing that I won't try or won't try and, um, you know, get something like or do something with, you know. So I think that Continental Rhyme is beautiful. And you know who used it very well was Robert Pinsky in his translation of the Inferno. Oh, I, I don't know that. Yeah, okay. I think he, he think he does some good work with that particular okay. thing, if I recall. All right. Well, Again, to... it's been years since I read that version. Um. Yeah, no, I have not. I haven't. I, I think I have a copy of it somewhere. I have, you know, it's like it's, there's certain there's certain books like like Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet and the Inferno where you end up you end up with like 17 copies over the course of your. <laughs> How like, does that like, happen? How does that happen? Yeah, they bleed. Uh, they bleed. Yeah, I know exactly. Um, I, all right, okay. The one, I just because I'm on the same page, I'm looking at it. One line, I, I, I think I understand, and I have, I can make a stab at, but I also just want to hear you elaborate. Mm -hmm. You have because you you do like what is very popian is you get a lot of these little one line 
declarations then you like move on to something else but one <laughs> yeah. you make here is you say because some artists make and some restore and you say and there's an equal love and either's brush and equal rush but then i want to say well, wait, wait, wait elaborate wait so okay so uh, how yeah. do you mean exactly what does that mean some artists make and some restore well i think that like it's like painting like restoration of painting and like um that person does a lot of work puts in a lot of work and basically if you looked at them if you just looked at them doing their work it would look a lot like painting something but they're restoring a piece um sometimes they're taking away to reveal what was always there and i think that like criticism can be a form of art i think of that sometimes when i read george steiner um where you know where you're peeling away you know you know almost interpretation can be an art and and i think in that particular line or, or couple lines there, I think I was getting at the idea that that in itself is a form of repetition where um, whether it's, uh, you know, restoring a work of art that someone else has made, like the way a, a painting restorer does, it's almost as though you're recapitulating that creative process by thinking about what it originally, what the original conception was or what the original execution was. And so in that sense, it's a retread or re recapitulation of that artistic moment. And I guess I don't necessarily say this, but in my head, I also think that like interpreting a poem or interpreting a work is also a form of repetition of that work, if only in your mind. Um, and, but even sometimes, you know what? A lot of times if a critic is going over, is like, is interpreting lines, they'll write the lines out. That too is a form of repetition. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's kind of, those are the just kind of random thoughts that I'm having as I ponder those lines. But I think that that's probably why I didn't unpack it where, um, I feel like it, it works better in its own kind of verse form rather than me yeah, yeah, eating yeah. from the hip, you know what oh, I'm it's saying? A, yeah, it's aphoristic and, and you have yeah. the, I think. You, have you written like collected aphorisms? Because I was gonna say, like you, you seem like the kind of poet who who could or would do aphorisms. Don, Don Patterson does that a lot, or did that a lot, but uh, I have not actually done that. But I think that very naturally, like my my style tends to be like that. I know that yeah. when I was when I was very young, when I first was getting into literature, you know, I was uh, very much into Nietzsche as many yeah, young men yeah, yeah. are, but like, yeah. I wasn't into him for his ideas. I was into him for his style, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I just, I just loved his style. And I was like, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the things that he's saying, but if I wrote philosophical prose, God, I would want it to sound like this. And if I wrote sentences, I want them to sound like this. And I was reading him in translation, actually Walter Kaufman's translation. Yeah, yeah. He was one of my really early prose and technically poetic influences too. Was right, yeah, yeah, because the gay, gay science has all that poetry in it, yeah. Yeah, but not even, but not even the gay science, but a, a lot of like um, like uh, Beyond Good and Evil and, and on the genealogy morals, like again, not the ideas, the, right. the, the, the way that he wrote really impressed me when I was young. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I definitely don't read him in order to like receive, receive, like, like, like yeah, principles or concepts, but yeah. but I think like it, it's both the style and the um, like the model for a way of looking at things. Like not not that I imitate him or want, but like 
I just find like it, it's always instructive to to listen to a like a great mind articulate a vision of things even if it's a vision i reject mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's i find it useful to to hear fully articulated a way of looking at the world no, i love that i love that about you and i love that <laughs> i love that i love that outlook because because no that's the supremely humanist outlook okay so basically uh, you know, I, I approach, I've approached literature like that because, you know, the treasures of the English, of the English tradition and of the Western tradition aren't necessarily my, don't necessarily, aren't necessarily consonant with my religious beliefs. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's inevitable that you have, like, I personally have to be like, okay, this particular writer would have condemned me to hell and, and sure. my ancestors to hell for eternity yeah. without really, you know, for just because of our beliefs or whatever. Yeah. And yet this is an amazing work of art and I love it. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of times people get wrapped up in the whole, you know, is this person good or bad? And therefore can I like their work or not? And I'm so routinely accustomed to, uh, loving the work of people who would condemn me and my ancestors to hell for eternity that I I don't necessarily even register that. I recently, I recently read a biography of Byron and it turns out that he was kind of a pedophile, you know, he was by modern (laughs) definition, he was a legit pedophile and he literally went into the Ottoman, you know, the Ottoman Turks, like you couldn't do, I mean, first of all, he did stuff even, even within England or even within the UK, but then the real market for that, for, you know, boys and whatever was, was, was over in the Ottoman Turkish world. And he he would have, he would have gone to Thailand today. Yeah. Yeah, He would have gone to Thailand today. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, basically I realized that, wow, I know this about him now. And yet I still love Don Juan, you know, like, and I, I could totally just pick up Don Juan right now and just vibe with it. And I love that book. I love that, that poem. And it doesn't, it didn't change anything because I didn't, I knew he, I thought he was just like a a bisexual Casanova type. Right. Yeah. 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 With little little dabbling in incest. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A little dabbling in incest, but you know, but other than that, I just figured he was just like, you know, just just really attractive and just right, took yeah. what was Bule- on offer. but it wasn't weirdo, like yeah. that it wasn't like that in fact shelley percy bish shelley like documented about how he saw um how he he observed um byron negotiating with uh, a, a poor a destitute mother for the use of her 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 oh, child Jesus. like her daughter basically and, yeah. and 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 you know this is this is just you know it's just sick. Like he was a sick dude. Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah. he was diseased and he was abused as a child. And there was, you know, there's must've been a lot of psychological psychiatric damage that he had yeah. and he had that foot and everything. And, and, but he was a damaged person who damaged other people. All right. He damaged oh, yeah. Kids. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 uh, and yikes, he's a terrible person. And, and now I know maybe why he was so much in disrepute back in the eight, like, you know, when, when in Victorian era, yeah, like mad, bad and dangerous to know, mad, yeah. bad and dangerous to know, but that was actually his contemporary, like, you know, somebody who, who knew him at the time, but like, um, or no, that was, a was that mad Jack Byron anyway? Um, but yeah, like, um, there's this scene in, in Joyce's portrait of the artist and the young man where like 
like these two, like somebody's like, I, 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 it's just like a vague memory, but like somebody's getting beat up and they're like, say Byron is bad or something like that. But there's this, there's this, you know, there was this disrepute, this sort of miasma of ill repute that, yeah. that clung to him, which I just thought it was because they were straight laced, but right. they straight laced, they didn't like a guy who could, you know, who could be promiscuous in his own way. Right. But it turns out that he was genuinely rotten, you know, but again, I can still, I still love his work. It's, 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 it is just what it is. Oh yeah, no, certainly. Yeah. I, I, th I think about that with, um, and I, I have, I, I, I am not able to have a poetic relationship to it because it's too distant linguistically though. I, I still need to read your translation of the Gita, but like I, I reread the Bhagavad Gita recently and it was not, a, it was not a great translation. I really should, I should read yours, uh, which is God's song is how you translate yeah, the title, yeah. which is, I guess the song of the Lord, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but the, it, that's when I really struggle with, but I still find it useful to read because I think the, the, you know, and like not having a Hindu background, you know, to me that the, the center of it is this conflict, this, this brilliant warrior who doesn't want to slaughter his own family. And then mm -hmm. the, like the idea that of course, like being presented with that as a problem, as a dilemma, you know, my sympathy is with that impulse. <laughs> it's like, yeah, look, how about not shooting all of your uncles and your cousins? But then yeah. the idea that it's like, there would be a a really like robust and like traditionally borne out and supported perspective that would say, actually that is the small minded view. Mm -hmm. There is a greater way of looking at it in which that says, do you know, do your duty, follow your dharma, do the thing that you're... And I even thinking, like, I was listening to this um, chess teacher and he was, do like, doing a, doing, like, a sample, uh, like, a, he was doing a demo, a demo game with, with one of his students and the student had a, had a small um, mouse slip where he had, mm -hmm. he moved the wrong piece and the, the teacher said, oh, I think that was a mistake. Let me see if I can let him take it back. I, I can't let him take it back. And he said, well... Uh, clearly this was a mistake. Clearly he didn't mean to leave his, to hang his queen, but he said, out of respect for the game, I'm going to take his queen anyway. And it, like, even just like that little way of thinking, it's like, oh, that's like a little echo of the Gita there that I think like, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't like learn my worldview from it, but I'm really grateful to have been taught a way of looking out at things through that, you know, through, through that way of thinking. Yeah. You know, the Gita is, the Gita is, uh, it's super. I know deep. there's a lot more to it than yeah. that, but there's, like, there's yeah. a lot more to it, and 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 it it is best understood in in the context of the epic from which of which it is a part. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. when when Arjuna says, you know, oh my God, those are my cousins and my uncles and this and that, it's not just uh, those are my family members. Like there's a lot of history there, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's there's dynastic, you know. There's there's a lot of history and a lot of um, a lot of attempts to f find a reconciliation that avoided war, you know, and so a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, there's this climactic moment in the Gita where uh, you know Krishna shows his universal form, right, and he shows his universal form to Arjuna, right, uh, yeah, which yeah. is sort of like you know in the cosmos and the universe and this and that yeah. and this and that. And that's in the 11th chapter, but a lot of people don't realize that in the epic, this is before the Gita begins, but in the epic Mahabharata that it's part of, uh, he actually shows that universal form to one other person, which is the main guy on the other side. 
And he's doing that when it's doing that when he goes into their kingdom and he basically is trying to avoid war. And he says, look, just give, there's these five brothers. They rightfully merit half the kingdom, but they're willing to settle for just five villages, one village for each one of them. Yeah. And, and then the guy says, no, they get nothing. And then he basically tries to arrest Krishna. And then Krishna says, look, you don't know who you're dealing with. Let me show you. Right. And he doesn't care. You know, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't recognize it. He doesn't right. recognize it for what it is. And so so like there that in itself is the end point of that that in that encounter is right. the end point of something that involved like multiple assassination attempts. Like they basically um, and then and then they they sent him into exile. They sent those brothers into exile. Yeah. Before that, they tried to assassinate him by building a house and then setting it on fire. Uh, and then there's all this crazy stuff that leads up to that moment. And I think when people read the Gita completely like out of nowhere, vacuum, they, yeah. they're basically like, but those are his family members. Bro. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's so much to it. There's so much to it. And that's why when, when, and that's why actually I, I wrote uh, a version, I've written a version of the Mahabharata and it's coming out in India oh. next year. Um, so 2023 is next year. Yes. Yeah. So that's coming out. It's like, it's a huge, it's like, it's like, uh, it's actually three books and I don't know if they've decided whether they're going to publish them in three volumes or just one big volume. Right. And like, um, the reason I did that is because I was getting ready to do this commentary on the Gita and in the beginning, they have these like characters and I was like, I want to know the backstories of each and every one of these characters completely. Right. And then I realized that this is the whole, the whole epic affects the 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 your reading of that gita and so in the epic so in the in my mahabharata trilogy that i've published that i'm going to be publishing next year i have an entire gita that i've rewritten as a contemporary poem with the same number of lines same number of verses same number of chapters same number of verses in each chapter and same like ideas only it's not a translation it's like a it's like a, a new poem yeah. um and I insert that in there. The whole thing's in prose, but then I insert this Gita poem in it so that when you read that, like you have the whole context, everything that led up to it. And so um, that was my pandemic project. Yeah. That's, what I did. That's a pretty meaty one. I was going to say the whole mob. <laughs> no, it was, I, you know, it's, it's a huge epic, but yeah. I made it readable. I made it readable and people no, that's would exciting. be able to. And also what I did is I, um, it's actually out with publishers in America right now. I don't know if anyone's going to publish it, but um, it'll it, it'll end up getting published. But sure. anyway, I, I'm pretty sure it will. But anyway, um, it just may take a while. I also have right. a bunch of other books coming out next year, so it's going to have to be pushed back anyway. Too but, many books. Too many books. Too many books. So 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 many books, so little time. But yeah. Anyway, then I also did. I also made sure that I for an American audience, because American audiences aren't familiar with the story the right. way that yeah, Indian yeah. audiences are. I break it up into little sections and I give you little summaries of the action and I give you the list of characters who are introduced and who they right. are so that you have like a, a handy reference. So, yeah, yeah. you know, if you see that guy, okay, what is that? Oh, okay, that's who that is. Do you know, do you know the um, uh, Pivar and Volokonsky uh, translations of um, uh, Dostoevsky? I, I audiobook Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, I but they, they're just like, at least the I have like the Everyman editions. They've done a few, um, yeah. but they, they always do a really good job of just like 
they do a pronunciation guide, but they also mm -hmm. like they list all of the characters oh, and just you know, give I've little notes and little like yes. which also helps because they will list like all of the different names that the characters are called yes. over the course Stefan of the novel. Stefanovic. <laughs> right, yeah. Sometimes called yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. So I could definitely with a, with a huge book like that, I, I can imagine that would be very helpful, but that's, I mean, that's fascinating because what you're saying is like, I've always thought of the Arjuna Krishna debate as being like a, like a theater of Arjuna as being like a Jesus or a, like a Gandhi kind of like merciful, but, but what you're describing is more like Arjuna is Neville Chamberlain and Krishna is Winston Churchill. <laughs> like, kind of, like, kind like, of, no, that's, pass, that's, like that's pacification is not going to work here. Yeah. Just, yeah. yeah, basically, remember, Arjun is not like Jesus or Gandhi or anything. No, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he doesn't, he doesn't he's have a, that he's a, he's greatness a, he's, of vision. Yeah. He's a small, but, he's, but yeah, yeah, gentle he's, might. He's, yeah, yeah. No, he's a he's a great he's a great archer. Like he's yeah. he's he's a killer. He's 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 yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and he's he can he's known to be like the supreme. Um, basically, the supreme wielder of right. that. Weapon. He's like he's like Achilles with a conscience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's right. You know, Achilles being the you know considered the the greatest warrior uh, yeah, of, yeah. of that of that host. Uh, that Arjun is that, but he's he's very very um, he's a good guy. He's a good guy on. He's kind of like a hybridization of Achilles and Hector, if you think about it. Mm. You know, because Hector is a is a family man. Yeah, he's, yeah. Hector's sort of the, the yeah. truly noble character but yeah he's noble and arjuna but, he, but he, his nobility becomes a kind of a, a weakness ultimately right and so yeah. and so arjuna is very noble and deeply thought and beloved of krishna and you know he's yeah. beloved of krishna for a reason he's not beloved of krishna achilles would not be beloved of krishna right no um <laughs> yeah achilles is a kind of an asshole but like yeah but arjuna is very very um he's 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 lethal yeah but he's also um so he's he's he he is a master of violence, right? But he's also um, uh, just a profoundly thought, deeply thought character and an emotional character. And that's why, when he's in that situation, it becomes he he loses his his nerve. He loses his nerve. Oh, and, and, and why, in a yeah. way that's understandable. But it's but this is the first time I realized. Like the argument I've always heard is that is that he, that fulfilling his duty as as the great archer is 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 good because of dharma because of like a larger cosmic lens but what you're suggesting is like it's not just that it's good it's the greater good in the in the cosmic sense it's the greater good in like the historical sense right now like right. It, it is better for him to to like dispositively wipe out this host of fighters in which, this which moment have, because which they've done a lot to avoid having to do right yeah like like yeah. i mean as with world war ii it's like well no right. actually this particular violence is the greater good because right. of what would happen otherwise. It has it has historical slash epic within the epic justification as absolutely true. Yeah, and that's that's probably the missing link. And uh, talking with you makes me realize that because I think that every Indian who reads the Gita has that in the back of their mind that basically you know he's he's up against Duryodhan. And Dronacharya and all those names that I'm saying, like right. they know who those are. They know right. who those guys are, and they know that they know that Duryodhan is, you know, uh, has tried to kill them on more than one occasion, and they know that Dronacharya has is basically this corrupt uh, uh, kind of guy who's who's um, yeah. They, they you know they they have the background of all that stuff, and and uh, and I think that that's something that 
hopefully the Mahabharata trilogy will help bring out for American audiences if slash when it finds its way uh, out in this part of the world. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. How many fucking pages is that? Oh, it hasn't been typeset yet, so I don't really know. How many words is it or lines or what do you? Well, you know what? I actually calculated that and it was, it was actually, it's very, I I do it very tightly and efficiently. So it's actually roughly, it's actually a little bit less than the number of uh, letters in, or sorry, number of words in the shortest Game of Thrones. In fact, I can I can actually tell you. Oh, the novel. Oh, the novels. The like novel. The, the, yeah. yeah. In yeah, the yeah, shortest, yeah. in the shortest one. Um. I wish I, I wish I. Uh. uh let me let me sh- and, actually one second. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, ah, the whole trilogy remains short. I'm writing to my publisher here. The whole trilogy remains shorter than the shortest volume of the Game of Thrones series. So it is just shorter than that. Okay. You know? All right. So it's an it's an epic, but it's a it's a manageable epic, I guess. It is. It is. A, it is manageable. I made sure that it was manageable. You know, like I wanted to make sure that someone could pick it up and like read it and get the full get the full story. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is and this the the um, Gita's in verse is the whole. Mahabharata verse, or is it the whole, the whole original one? Is but okay. the, my my version is in prose. Okay. It's only the Gita portion that mm-hmm. is a, a sort of exact a repetition, haha, a repetition, right. yeah, yeah. A mirror image of the actual Gita. Yeah, yeah. Not a translation of it, but like a replication of it. That's yeah. in verse. Okay. But everything else, everything else is uh, in prose. Which, yeah, which, yeah, pro- probably for. I mean, as you talk about in the in the introduction to this, that like we as with essays we probably are more at ease receiving a big a big novelistic story in novel form in in prose yeah absolutely yeah yeah that's just how people process it and that's how people enjoy it That was this week's show. You could find me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com and Amit Majmadar is on Twitter at Amit Majmadar, I'm pretty sure, uh, and a whole bunch of other places. I will include links in the show notes. Thank you all for listening and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then.